If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Oh, my goodness. We have just an unbelievably awesome episode for you all today. So I hope you're ready. I hope you're prepared. But you know what? You're not going to be ready because it's just that good. Anyway, hi, my name is Keith Giles. I am one of many, a plethora of podcast hosts on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I'm the author of several books, including uh, most recently, Jesus Undefeated. Um, What was that called again? Uh, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. Yeah, that's what it was called. And uh, a couple other books. Um, And I'm joined by my Many, many co-hosts. Uh, I'll just let them introduce themselves. Uh, Matt, Derek, Katie. I don't know what order you want to go in, but say hi. Hi, I'm Derek. Hi, Derek. I'm a recovering asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? You got no, you got no books. You got no books to sell. Nothing else to tell oh, people about. Oh my god, do I have to <laughs> br- brag on myself? Okay, so yeah. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion. You can get it on Amazon. It's a great book, even though I'm past that now. <laughs> That's all, folks. I'll go next. I'll go next. I'm Katie. It is fun to be here and I will share my book with you because I think five people have read it. And so maybe we can get that number up to six (laughs) for you were bought with a price, sex, slavery, and self-control, an appalling community. And it is a 400 page analysis of four verses in in first Corinthians. And I would love to say that you're the sixth person to have read it. So, (laughs) and I'll get a more user-friendly one out there soon. You had me at sex, Katie. You know what? If you search it on Amazon, sometimes it, sometimes it shows up in adult content. So it's kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, perfect. Uh, and that makes me Matt DeStefano. I think all of my books add up to 400 pages and there's six of them. So, um, well done for writing such a lengthy book, Katie. Um, I'm, I'm excited for another episode, but before we get into it today, we of course have to hear from our sponsor, Wild Foods. You can find them at wildfoods.co and they have, of course, the adaptogenic mushrooms, which are the perfect addition to your morning coffee, or if you're doing butter coffee and all that, add it in there. If you haven't used them, you're missing out. If you haven't used the promo code that they give us, you're missing out. So make sure when you go to wildfoods.co, you put in the promo code HAPPYHOUR12 and you get 12% off your order. So check check them out today. Yeah. And did you know that the Heretic Happy Hour has a hotline? And if you think that that's cool, try saying that five times very fast. (laughs) You can reach us. By exercising finger dexterity at 240-343-7379. Once again, 240-343-7379. And we have a text. Roll text. Elena Brooks writes, I am writing because I read Matt's article on Mimesis called The God of Peace. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. I think I will meditate on it for a long time. I would be interested to hear your thoughts. If desire is mimetic, how can we constructively mimetic desires? Also, regarding peacemaking and in light of our events in the world, I think we all want to become people of peace. We want to live as people of a peaceful God. 
there is a beautiful insight in that God is our maker, our continuous maker in a sense, but there is a way we are to participate in the making of peace and or ourselves as peacemakers. Finally, how do we reconcile our desire to be made into vessels of peace and good with one another and the awareness that we just cannot heal all of the discord and pain, if any of it? How do we participate, if we do, in making ourselves into peace while knowing well and with a certain sadness that we are imperfect and profoundly limited? Thank you all so much for discussing this. I appreciate each of you. Wow. Yeah. We appreciate you too. We do. Yeah, you. this is a very thoughtful question. Yeah, it, there's a, it was probably our longest text. I'll just I'll just start real quick <laughs> since um it mentioned my article. That was actually the first article I ever got published with the Raven Foundation in um 2015. Um so thank you for reading it, Elena. Um that's awesome. Um man, I just uh there's a lot to unpack there. How do we constructive how do we have constructive mimetic desires? Um I think that's important. That's the importance of, of a figure like Jesus is, yes, we, we are mimetic. Yes, we do have desires that are picked up by the desires of others, but uh, we can have positive or creative mimesis. Uh, Tony Bartlett talks about that. Other folks talk about this. And that's why we have someone like Jesus who's a model who's not going to model for us how to get into rivalries like we all typically do, but he's going to model for us um, a different way. And so I think that gets to the second part of the question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it off to, to you all um, and get your thoughts, though. Yeah, I, I, you know, basically, I, I think that the way I look at Jesus now is he is the prototype of fully formed divine humanity. And so if we want to understand what divine humanity looks like, we look to him. And with that in mind, that basically being peace— you, or let me put it this way. You can't be peace without first being love. And it takes the understanding that we are love, we are loved, and we are to reflect and manifest love. And once we understand that, I think that peace is a natural outcropping. Ooh, I like that, Derek. I, um, yeah, peace is an outgrowth of love and maybe self-love. And the part of the question that's just capturing my, my attention here is the how do we reconcile our desire to be made into vessels of peace and good with one another with the awareness that we can't heal all discord and pain, if any of it. And actually, that's not, I don't think that's necessarily our job. Like our job is to, you know, enter into this place of love, to be peacemakers, whether or not it makes peace is not beside the point, but way out of our control. Yeah. And so being a peacemaker doesn't mean that we have to make peace or even be the healer, it means that that's what we're putting out there all the time. And we're really hoping that it has some impact. And uh, I just know from anyway, my personal experience, I don't know, but in my personal experience, um, sometimes uh, most of the time, 99% of the time, I don't get to know the impact. And if there's healing of, of discord, but 1% of the time I get to, and I love the 1%, but most <laughs> of the time we put it out there and we don't know what gets, you know, we don't really know what's happening. We're just trusting. And I, I, you know, I believe if I'm faithful to the peacemaking process, um, it'll be faithful to me. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. I, I it's funny, Katie, cause that's the part you zeroed in on is exactly the part of the text that, that also jumped out at me for the same reason. And I think I agree with you. I, I think it's sort of like, um, you know, who said the, it might've been Gandhi or someone, right. That, um, there is no path to peace. Uh, peace is the path, right. Um, hmm. 
And it is one of those things where I'm like, I get it. I understand that we sometimes get very goal-oriented or performance-oriented. We're, we're Westerners, so we're, we kind of are, uh, that's our problem. Um, but, you know, people in the East typically don't have that problem. They understand that, no, the, the fact that you can reach a place that you recognize your mimesis, that you're working towards peace, that you're following Jesus, you're moving into these awarenesses of who you are as one who is made in the image of love, uh, because God is love and you've been made in his image and that uh, those kinds of things that in itself is the goal. And so once you're living that way, you know, you, you've already done like 99% of what you you're expected to do. Um, I think we, you know, we get hung up on, well, but I can't change the world and I can't make a huge difference. And it's almost like, well, why try? And, and that really shouldn't be our perspective. Um, I was just talking, someone just today asked me something about, um, you know, Keith, he said, you know, Keith, I understand we're supposed to be more loving, but I'm really bad at it. It just doesn't come naturally to me. You know, I just feel so very defeated. What do I do about that? And I just said, well, you know, if, if, um, if you wanted to be good at tennis and you were really bad at tennis, you, what would you do? You probably read some books on tennis, watch some videos on tennis, maybe take some lessons on tennis. You probably practice tennis quite a bit. You talk to other people that play tennis, you get some tips from them, you know, like you would work at it, right? You wouldn't just say, I suck at it and stop you know, uh, that you shouldn't do that. And so especially when it comes to something as important as being like Christ, as loving our neighbor, as being people who are instruments in, uh, of peace and ambassadors of the kingdom and all, all those things, we don't quit because we're not good at it. Uh, we, we continue in it because we recognize that this is the path. And by the more we walk that path, the more we are going to be transformed into people who, uh, who get better at it. So... Anyway, let me throw one more log on that fire. It, I think that um, part of it is it, it's not so much the doing. And, and I try to stay away from the doing. You know, we, we say, if you want to get good at something, practice. And, you know, in the natural, that's that's, a, you know, an intuitive approach. But what I'm thinking of is something a little counterintuitive that first we focus on being. And, and part of the reason why we have trouble loving is because we don't really rightly discern our being. If we understand our being, again, our, our prototype is Jesus, our paradigm is Jesus. So we understand what it is to be love, to, to actually physically be love. It, I almost like to take people through uh, an exercise like uh, uh, Katie did over the weekend in, in the NAMAT conference, and basically visualize yourself as love. See yourself as the living embodiment of love and then just simply be that. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's so cool. Matt, since you wrote the article that um, jump-started this whole question, I'm kind of curious what your response is to the second parts of the question. Uh, well, first of all, I will say, I don't even remember what I wrote in that article, but... Um... <laughs> 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 no, I... Oh, there it is. I know I'm damn smart. <laughs> um, no, I, I think I think everything that you guys are sharing is wonderful. I, I think we do get into this um, performance based mindset, or we get defeatist or nihilistic when we we can't um, change things throughout the world. We can't. We can barely change things in our own life. But you know, it's um, this this whole experience of life is sort of like a giant ship going through water. You're not going to turn things. It's a it's a slow turn, is what I'm saying. And and there, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think we start um, living out of this place of love toward our neighbor that is literally across the street. We don't have to get so 
theoretical or, you know, global even, like I, I think we can start changing things and practicing things today. If we have extra eggs, we offer it to our neighbor. If we have, um, you know, if we're good at something and we notice our neighbor's fence needs repairing, we offer to do that. So it's just little stuff like that. And, and, and we, I think that gives us a sense of accomplishment. It helps motivate us and it helps to see like you literally change the world, even if it's just in this little plot of land where you're at. So, yeah. um, you know, that, that's my, yeah. So like tend to our own garden. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Elena, you provided, um, such food for thought here. This was <laughs> such a great text message. Thank you so really? much. And, uh, yeah. And a, a very meaty one. So, well, yeah, is this a good time to maybe introduce our heretic of the week? It's the heretic of the week. Hi, my name is Kevin Miller and I'm this week's heretic. Hi, Kevin. Hey guys. <laughs> hey, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for um, giving us some of your time and giving our listeners some of your time. First thing we like to do uh, in, in, this, in this interview thing we do is ask our guests, why is it that some people consider you a heretic? Well, it's hard to answer the question of some people, but I can tell you why my mom thinks I'm a heretic. That helps oh, yeah, yeah, let's get personal. Yes. <laughs> pretty, pretty specific, yeah. Well, because I think my mom is representative of a, of a way of looking at the world, which is um, this way. It's an evangelical form of Christianity that considers itself to be Christianity. And so it is yeah. the yardstick by which Christianity is measured because somehow they were fortunate enough to stumble upon the truth. And so any deviation from that point of view is there for heresy. And so uh, my mom would consider me to be a heretic because, for instance, I don't uh, believe in hell as a place of eternal conscious torment. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I don't believe in demons or angels or anything like that. There's, there's a number of ways that I depart from evangelical Christianity um, and so that in the eyes of those types of people makes me a heretic just because I have a different point of view than they do. Right. Uh, cause you know, for that type of a Christian, what you believe is the most important thing about you, um, as opposed to who you are, um, how you treat other people and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And didn't we, didn't we see that? I mean, <laughs> most obviously when Rob Bell wrote his book, Love Wins, it was, and I think this point is made. I don't even remember. Maybe it's in your film Hellbound. Um, it was. It was not. It was not what Rob is as a husband, a father, a member of his community. Nothing of that. It was just like what you believe. Farewell, peace out. You're not in anymore. It's just. Yeah. I mean, it's. It, it happens too often, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I. I. I don't think that just happens in uh, Christianity. I think Christianity is a real reflection of North American culture. Where if you look at North American political culture what you believe about an issue is the most important thing about you. It doesn't matter if you're a total asshole, um, as long as you line up on one side or the other of, of the uh, abortion debate, that's good enough. And I think that there's no better example of that than somebody like Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Where people are willing to forgive all kinds of character flaws as long as he uh, is going to support a particular view of the world. So I think Christianity is very much a product of its environment as it always has been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's what we, what we are suffering from, and you're right about that. Is is uh, it's this toxic tribalism that we we practice, and we're kind of trapped in it at almost every level of society. Certainly with politics, certainly with uh, Christianity or religion, right? Where it's this us and them thing, and it's so pervasive. Um, 
And we basically create these, these groups, right? These little bubbles of we're like, okay, everyone who believes like me, everyone who thinks like me is good and kind and beautiful and wonderful and is thoughtful. And, uh, and you know, if they make mistakes, look, we're all human. People make mistakes, right? You know, it's okay. Cause I make mistakes sometimes too. And this, this is, these are the rules of engagement you have with anybody who's in your tribe. But if someone is not they don't think like you. They're, they they think differently than you. They have a different worldview, whether that's political or, or spiritual. Well, if they make a mistake, if they slip up, oh, there you go. That's evidence that those people are evil to the core. They hate everything good in the world. They don't like puppies or kittens. And you know what I mean? They, they want to mur- they, they eat babies. Like It's like it's the most extreme polarized way of looking uh, at the world. And it's especially dangerous, I think. And I love your documentaries because I think you've – done a beautiful job of shining a light on these things. What, what it does is basically say that, you know, um, if like what we do is with Christianity, when we behave this way, we're essentially reducing Christianity to, uh, it is information. If you have the right information about God, then you're a Christian and it has nothing to do with how you behave or anything about your character, or even, even if you take, you know, following Jesus seriously or anything like none of that matters. You just have to be able to answer these 10 questions correctly. And if you do, there you go, you're in. And you, you can do whatever else you want. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, going to my documentary, Hellbound, I think Michael Harden makes a really good uh, example of this, just talking about Satan as being a, essentially a lawyer. And he's the one pointing the finger. And that's what we all become is whenever somebody steps out of line, we point the finger and we become the accuser. And so what is everyone trying to do? They're trying to avoid the finger being pointed at them. And so there's this sort of false unanimity that we have because people are scared to death of um, being outed as um, you know somebody who thinks differently than the group because then you become the scapegoat of the group and uh, you know I've definitely experienced that personally you know when you make a film like Hellbound that's just inevitable um, but uh, you know I, I think I just think it's it's really unfortunate because it stifles um, constructive discussions I you know as many people right now I'm helping homeschool my kids during uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis that we're having. And I was helping my son, who's in grade 10, we're talking about the value of political parties and and all that sort of thing. And how, you know, we have this problem now where no good ideas can come from people who aren't part of our tribe. Um, Why? Because they're not part of our tribe, because what are we ultimately interested in power and control? Mm -hmm. And so we can't admit that the people over there might have something going and and it's really unfortunate because then what is the goal of a political party it's to to attain and hold on to power the the furthest thing from their mind is to do what's best for right. the nation um because they will only do what's best for the nation if that's also going to benefit them as a party and i think you know religions or various religious groups we fall prey to the same sort of thing because there's so much vested um you know in terms of identity in terms of money um, livelihood and that sort of thing that, you know, the notion of changing our mind around key issues, everything is stacked against us doing that. And cause you, you pay such an awful price for changing your mind on topics. And that boy, that is a, what a stifling chilling effect on culture when that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking, speaking of changing your mind, um, you mentioned, um, you mentioned your mother. And so I'm assuming that you come from a background that can loosely be called evangelicalism, I suppose. I'm just uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And, and I, after you know, watching some of your movies and and uh, knowing a little bit about you, Kevin, I, I don't see you there any longer. So, what sticks out in your journey 
that has caused change and what events have led to that? And also to follow up, um, what are, what are some of the things that, 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 that cut you in a deep personal way because you don't hold these beliefs any longer? Well, just a bit on my background, my grandfather on my mother's side was a chaplain. Uh, well, he was a minister. He was a chaplain in World War II. He landed shortly after D-Day and was, you know, witness to some of the worst, you know, final battles of the war. He came mm-hmm. home from that experience no longer believing in God, and yet he served the rest of his life as a minister, basically as a closet atheist, but he felt religion was wow. um, a valuable unifying sor- uh, you know, force in society. So that was where I, that was sort of the the view I was originally raised with, I became an evangelical kind of by accident when I was nine years old. I went to a church camp and I said the sinner's prayer and I became a Christian. Um, But I was definitely afraid to tell my family about what I had done. Um, Even though I was terrified of them going to hell, I was more worried about them finding Mm -hmm. out I'd become one of these evangelicals. But my parents eventually came over to the evangelical side of things when I was Mm -hmm. in my teenage years. And so we started attending actually a Mennonite church. And then I went to uh, Bible college and kind of got indoctrinated into that world again, sort of by accident. Cause I thought, you know, Greg Boy talks in Hell, Hellbound about people who mistake the map for the territory. Yeah. And so that's really the mistake I had made is that I'd come into a stream of, of you know, a, a thin narrow stream of Christianity, but thinking it was Christianity. Catholics were bad. Yeah. Orthodox weren't even on my radar. Right. <laughs> um, other types of evangelicals were good, but some of them were sketchy. And then there's the whole mainline thing, which was they'd all, you know, just totally lost it. And so I kind of got indoctrinated into that world. You know, a friend of mine, when I was in Bible college, he had a good way of putting it. He said about talking about Christians and non-Christians. He said about non-Christians that they're good in a bad way and we're bad in a good way. In other words, we've got this chummy relationship with God. So even though we sin, we, you know, we're still on the, on the goods. Whereas even if non-Christians do something good, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Mm. So it's ultimately bad. So that's kind of was a good representation of the mindset that was around me. And so um, like any good cult member, I kind of Mm. fell into it by accident and it it came to define my world. And thank God that, um, you know, I had some experiences that started to shake me out of that. Um, I can't honestly point to any defining moment except that, you know, I think really hell was always a problem for me, even back when I was nine years old. It just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really um, some older gentlemen who I ended up spending a lot of time with uh, hiking, people like uh, Brad Jersak, who some of your your uh, listeners might know who that is, uh, Ron Dart, uh, an Orthodox Archbishop as well, who was a friend of mine. We spent a lot of time together and I kind of they sort of, um, I guess by osmosis started to lead me out of that really narrow view of Christianity and open me up to a lot of things. A a really pivotal point for me though, was, uh, I, I've worked as a filmmaker. I've also spent a lot of my life working in publishing. And so I edited a book by Brad Jersak called her gates will never be shut. Yes. Great book. Yeah. It was a book on hell. And what Brad did was really simple is he said, okay, let's look at the history of hell. Let's look at um, all the biblical passages that are used to support this idea of eternal conscious torment. Let's look at the interpretive tradition of these passages and some of these theological images, and let's see where we end up. And in that way, simple way of doing things, you, you know, I arrived at a point where 
I remember working on that book and just shouting up to my wife a couple of times from my office, I work at home and saying, you know, I got to make a movie about this. And uh, because I just found it so freeing to realize that throughout the history of Christianity, there was all kinds of ways of looking at this topic. And from that very quickly followed um, a reexamination of the atonement. And I also, in the midst of all that, was working on a documentary called Expelled, No No Intelligence Allowed, which was looking at uh, intelligent design and evolution and, and, uh, you know, engaging at a really deep level with uh, people like Richard Dawkins and all kinds of other atheists. It just, it it just demolished (laughs) my evangelical faith. Um, Just it was getting hit from pretty much every direction. And so... It was pretty exciting. And um, it just, it was like suddenly I felt like I had, you know, it's like Neil being unplugged from the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the real world. Yeah. Has, has, uh, has your mom watched Hellbound? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have all kinds of things that we can't discuss. <laughs> Hellbound. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Yeah. I, yeah there's, a lot of, there's a lot of off-limits conversations. And again, we're in good terms, but um, it's just, it's just way, way too stressful to get into the subject areas for her. Yeah. 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 So you meant, you mentioned this documentary that you yeah. have just, have you just released it? Yes. Just released it, uh, about a week ago. My most recent film, JES USA, which questions the whole notion of, uh, violence. All right. So let's, let's talk about that. I, I watched it this morning. I loved it. Yeah. I, um, it was, uh, you and I were talking before we, it record how a lot of um, a lot of our listeners will recognize these names that we've had on the show: Greg Boyd, uh, Derek Flood. Um, yeah, who who else did you have? Oh, yeah. uh, Brian yeah. Zond. Uh, Brian Zond. Yeah. Diana Butler Bass. Oh yeah. Father, yes. Father yeah. John Deere. Preston Sprinkle. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and and it was it was really interesting. My, I, what what I was thinking of is how because you ha- you also interview people that probably don't align with those type of people on nonviolence. So you and then you do the same thing in Hellbound. You you interview people uh, like Mark Driscoll and and people that don't necessarily agree with you. Um, how do how do those? I've, I've always been curious. How do those interviews go? I mean, how do you approach people um, in a way that you can? can ask them questions that I'm sure are going to get some interesting responses without like tipping your hand on maybe what, how you want to do the, the, the film. Well, it's kind of like or what when point you, you want to make in the film. It's kind of like when you cross the border, you know, I always say to people, if you're crossing it, the border, never volunteer information, only ask, answer the questions you're asked. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you have to be a little bit, um, I'm not sure what the word is. I mean, I try and definitely be forthcoming about what the nature of the film is. So say on JAS USA, I'm saying, I said to people that I'm making a film that looks at the question of violence and Christianity. And what I'm trying to do is get, um, uh, uh, you know, views from across the spectrum from people who believe that violence is completely okay for Christians and people who are just adamantly nonviolent. And so when I approached, uh, like one of the people we feature in the film is Sean Moon, who people might, uh, they might not know his name, but they've definitely heard of the Moonies or the uh, Unification Church. And they may have also heard of Sean's church where they did a ceremony a couple of years back where people renewed their wedding vows accompanied by some type of a firearm, typically an AK, uh, or not AK, <laughs> AR-15. And again, that sounds like a crazy thing, but go and spend a few days with the, them. And, and, you know, it's a rational Within their view, it's a very rational thing to do because they see men and women as kings and queens. They believe that that's what we are biblically. And so what are the rights of a king 
and a queen, they can own land, and then they can also have a rod of iron by which they protect that land. So they justify this from the Bible. Anyway, uh, you know, so it's trying to get them to agree to go on film. That's sort of how I approach them. And I don't necessarily disclose my position on the topic, but I, and, and I honestly say that I'm making this film because I'm eager to explore various yeah. points of view. And I really am. I mean, I think yeah. about yeah. when I'm making a documentary, like I always say you start the film uh, thinking you know about the topic, but then, you know, the making of the film is really a deconstruction of yourself in relation to sure. the topic because you realize, boy, I didn't know anything about this subject. Um, and so, yeah, you approach those people carefully. And, um, and uh, I try, the other thing too, is that I come from a soci sociology background and and one way of doing sociology is what's called participant observation. So what a sociologist might do is um, they might uh, have themselves uh, put in a prison and uh, they live as a prisoner for 30 days, not disclosing to anybody that they're there actually studying the prison culture. And so what they're getting then, what they're eliminating is observer interference. And so they get to see how people behave when, as they would when nobody's watching. And so when I'm doing documentaries, I like to, as much as possible, present myself as a uh, non-antagonistic um, interviewer, because what it, what's of interest to me is to get what people really think um, and, and to present that as clearly as I can. So that I, I'm, the film, say, in JES USA, some of these people, um, clearly my point of view in the film is not in alignment with theirs, but I think that all of them can say that I represented them clearly because it was in my interest to do that mm -hmm. because what I really yeah. want to do is contrast their point of view with people who are diametrically opposed to them. No. And I, and I, and I tip my hat to you because I think you do a very good job of that. And, um, I noticed that in the film, it doesn't, it, it, it's obvious that you probably, and maybe that's just part of me knowing your a little bit about your background, knowing that you do have a view that's different, but you don't make that you, you present it fairly. And I appreciated that. Even though I would fall in more in line with the nonviolent camp, I was like, "Well, this seems fair. Like this is a this is a fair representation. It's done well." And so, yeah, I, I gotta definitely tip my cap to you for that. Yeah, I, I agree. I would say the same thing. I, I was able to watch it as well, and um, very, very well. You and I were talking before we hit record, and I was telling you that um, the first ten minutes of it are very, were very stressful to me as someone who is someone a nonviolent. Uh, follower of Christ, because uh, I was hearing some of these very extreme views, um, just quoting scripture to, I mean, again, like you were saying, lots of things are biblical, but not not many things are Christ-like. And so, yeah, you're right. You can use the Bible to justify some of these things, but you can't really, I think, from a, a Christ-centered point of view, just although some of these guys definitely did their best. Um, so it was very stressful at the beginning. And then I think mercifully, um, it felt like anyway, you, you gave a little bit more time and space for people like Derek Flood and uh, Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn. And I was so grateful for that. Like, oh, God, I can breathe now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because because I, at least now I feel like some of these misconceptions are going to be discussed and addressed. And, and giving, um, you know, a really good chunk of time to address because, you know, I've, I've been – uh, and Matt, Matt as well, I'm sure, has, has been online and in books and blogs and things 
uh, endlessly debating Christians on these questions of what about turning over the table in the temple and what about Jesus said go and buy a sword and you know all the all the typical arguments. Uh, what about when Jesus comes back? He's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to slaughter millions of people. Hallelujah. Yeah. You know. Um, so being able to like address those questions and respond. Uh, to those objections and those perspectives. I'm, Fred, thank you for doing that. I think it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, gift to people to help them see that, uh, some things that I think it's been difficult to see otherwise. Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, another person, of course, I always blank when people ask me who's in the film, but David Bentley Hart, of course, is in the film. I call him, oh. I call him the badass of the film because he says the most controversial yes. things in the movie. But uh, And he's got a great sense of humor, too, which many people I don't think realize. But, you know, I want to say one thing about people like Sean Moon and Jimmy Meeks and Carl Chin and Dave Grossman, who all kind of represent the, yes, you can be violent and be a Christian point of view at the beginning of the film, that to a man, um, and speaking of Sean's church to a person, these people were extremely gracious to us. And um, they also, I believe all of them are acting out of um, a, a place of virtue in terms of mm -hmm. they really see themselves as, you know, we say, in the, as Sean says in the film, is that they're shepherds. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd protects the flock. Like they're yeah. they're operating out of a, of a paternal mindset um, that is a you know there is something good there like i listened to sean moon preach like a three-hour sermon half of which you know half the time he was railing about alex jones and, and the mistreatment of alex jones and in Infowars. the other half of the time he was <laughs> he was uh, talking to the young men of the church trying to get them to respect women to be disciplined to get educated to work to save their money to buy property you know to you know he's really trying to turn these young guys uh, into something good, you know, at, but then there's mm -hmm. this craziness on the other side of it too. So, um, but you know what I'm saying is that I really feel um, that the motives uh, that these people are working from are good. Like uh, Jimmy Meeks, who's in the film, he runs something called uh, Sheepdog Seminars and he goes around the country teaching faith-based organizations and other uh, type, other such places on how to prepare for um, mass shooting events and that sort of thing. And and uh, he was a cop in Dallas, Texas uh, for 40 years, never drew his gun. Um, so here's a guy who believes that violence is an option, and yet he never resorted to it when he was actually licensed by the state to use deadly violence um, to resolve conflict. So, you know, yeah. it's you can't just write off people who have that point of view as just crazy or, um, mm -hmm. you know, just evil or whatever. I mean... There, there's a lot of integrity in in terms of yeah. how these people live their lives. Yeah, yeah, and no, thank you, for, thank you so much, Kevin, for pointing that out. Because I mean, we we just spent time uh, at the beginning of this interview talking about how we us and them people, right? How we put people in this box and say, well, if you think the way I do, you're a good person, but if you don't think the way I do, you're you know you're evil or you're you're a wacko. And so, yeah, see, we have to do the exact same thing. We have to acknowledge that these are good people and that they are they they are working out of a good place now. Um, we may disagree with how that comes about, or even the the basis of what their uh, the foundation that they're using to uh, you know to justify their behavior or their way of thinking. But we can't say that they're bad people; they're evil people. They they and I think that comes across in the in the documentary. You definitely get that sense of uh, I think the man you're talking about meets. I think he does. You definitely see his heart, right? That he, he that he loves God and he loves people and he wants to take what he, the skill sets that he has and he's doing the best that he can and in the best way he knows how 
um, to do what he believes Jesus would want him to do, which would be to protect people. Right. And, and I think that for these types of people, the people in the film, but also people who share their point of view, is that violence is never a first resort for them. Um, no. they, they want to reserve it as a last resort. But the problem with that way of thinking is that, you know, when violence reserve, is reserved as the last resort, it almost always becomes the first line of defense because it seems to be the thing that gives us the greatest sense of control over a situation. And so that's right. where I think it becomes dangerous. And and also when we begin to operate um, using violence as a group, that's when things become really dangerous. And I'm not sure if your listeners are aware of, you know, René Girard and mimetic theory, but, mm -hmm. but that contagion of violence that can spread very, very quickly um, where the group is threatened. And, um, you know, if it's, if we're going to be, if the survival of the group is pitted against, you know, basically the, the destruction of some kind of a scapegoat, we're going to go with the scapegoat every time because, you know, yep. we're operating out of this, this, uh, you know, this self-preservation mode. And that's, again, what I'm trying to get at in the film is that, um, yeah, you know, self-preservation is always going to lead to sacrifice and not, and it's going to lead to sacrifice of the other, uh, for the sake of the group. And I believe that what, you know, the core of the gospel is self-sacrifice, that the gospel is the undoing of sacrificial. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. most Christianity is functioning as a primitive sacrificial religion. And, and what I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to explode that in the film, um, in terms of, you know, I think that Christianity or, or what Jesus, what we, this is so hard to talk about in, because uh, I keep falling back on the old language, but I think what comes through in the Gospels and what comes through in the Jewish scriptures is, is the, the end of religion, if religion means um, forming a community around a scapegoat. I think that that's really what, what the, the Jewish and Christian scriptures are, are just the undoing of that way of looking at things. And that's what I try and communicate in the film. Yeah. So where, where can, uh, where can our listeners, um, watch this film and, and follow your work? Cause I know they're going to be interested in this. I, I, I do know that. Um, yeah. So you can see JS USA, you can see it on, uh, right now we're on Vimeo. So if you just do, uh, a, uh, uh, just go on, uh, Vimeo JS USA and you'll find it. Um, and, uh, you can go to our website. It's J E S U S A film.com. Uh, we've also, of course, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and all that sort of thing. And uh, we're only on Vimeo right now. We were just about to release, and then we all got hit by the coronavirus, which has delayed things by probably 90 days or something like that. But we will eventually find our way onto Amazon, Google Play, iTunes, or Apple TV, or whatever it's called now. And uh, yes, yeah, so you can see the film that way. We've tried to make it cheap. It's only 5 bucks to rent, 10 bucks to buy, because uh, we just want to get it out to as uh, many people as possible. I also have a personal website. Um, I do filmmaking. I also write books. Um, you can see me at uh, kevinmillerxi.com. That's my my personal website. Yeah, and um, not not to go back too far in time, but I love the film Hellbound. Where can people check out Hellbound? Um, yeah, Hellbound. You can uh, pretty much get it anywhere. Um, you can okay uh, get on Amazon, Google Play, iTunes. It's it's all over the place. Great. Great stuff. I know people are going to be interested in that one too. Well, man, Kevin, thank you so much. What, uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. I, I hope you're going to keep making uh, great documentaries that help us to think and to challenge us no matter what side uh, we're on. Uh, I appreciate that about you. I appreciate that about your documentaries and I hope there's many more to come. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, these are, uh, these are tough films to make partly because, uh, 
you know, uh, it's hard to make money doing this these days. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the people who invest in these films, they really need to believe in the subject matter. They can't just be motivated by profit. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm always interested in meeting people like that. Good place to put yeah, the word out. Yeah. If you get, if you get some numbers, uh, you let us know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. thank, thank right. you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it here. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Kevin. Thanks. Appreciate thanks, Kevin. it. Wow. Kevin Miller, thank you so much. What an amazing uh, interview. What a great guy. Love the work that he's doing. I I hope he's busy working on like 10 other documentaries, just like uh, the ones he's done, because uh, I love his work. I love what he's doing. Yeah, Yeah, good dude. Uh, I know his his, his documentary, Hellbound, was super helpful back in the day for me. Um, I was already kind of like, you know, had read a bunch of stuff before I watched it, but it was still like, wow, this is well done. And his newest one is is really good too. So bravo, Kevin. Yeah, J-E-S-U-S-A is, if you guys haven't seen it, it's awesome. You got to watch it. Mm -hmm. Derek, I don't know about you, but it was really illuminating hearing all the questions that was asked to Kevin in the conversation. But you and I didn't get to, didn't get to participate. We were put on mute the whole time. I know. Well, you guys, you guys are, you guys are new. I mean, we got, we got to ease you into the show. It was illuminating (laughs) though. No, it was illuminating. I'm really, I'm a really cool, really cool uh, interview. I think, yeah. I think you guys are on probation for oh, at least a couple oh, episodes, okay. you know, because you're new. We just need to make sure you're ready. You, you know, you're really ready for the heretic day. of the hey, week. That's ha- that's yeah. hazing. It's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, we'll, we'll have a virtual drink after this together. All right. There you go. All right. Well, you know what? Um, it's time. Um, well, I should I should say it this way. Uh, we have we have a brand new sermon series in this uh, podcast. It's the very first one in the series that we're doing. Uh, it's a brand new series on the Sermon on the Mount, and what we're going to be talking about really where Jesus is speaking truth to power, which I think is really relevant for the world we're living in today. So, as we um, transition now into our topic for this podcast, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, and um, well, we're going to break it into chunks because it's kind of a long long sermon that Jesus uh, provides for us here, or is given to us in Matthew. And um, so for this episode, we're going to look at the Beatitudes starting in chapter 5 of Matthew and looking at verses 1 through 11. So the Beatitudes, these are the blessed be, blessed are the uh, statements of Jesus, which really kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, guys. Um, I don't know where you guys want to go with this. What do we want to say about the Sermon on the Mount, or do we want to need to kind of summarize what this is all about? The entire sermon? Yeah, I can the entire sermon. No, no, you know, just in general. <laughs> what is what is what is the Sermon on the Mount, guys? Why would we want to do like a whole series of podcasts on this on this uh topic? Uh, one of the reasons it intrigues me is because there's um several non-Christians, including Gandhi, who have found the Sermon on the Mount to be like the heart of of um, good ethical teaching. And I think it was Gandhi that said, you know, if every Christian actually lived by the Sermon on the Mount, I might become one, but unfortunately I know too many of them. Uh, so it's so right. inspiring beyond only for Christians. And uh, so many kind of sound bites that we have for um, for scripture verses come from, you know, these three little chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So let me just lob a grenade in here. I'm, I'm going to yeah, bring it up. Shots I'm, fired. I'm going to start. <laughs> Shots fired. I'm going to start. But bring yeah. it. Bring it. <laughs> I, I think that it's probably one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture because people look at this as a guide for living, and it is not. 
The whole sermon? Mm-hmm. The whole thing. So tell us why. Why do you think that, Derek? Why do you not think this is uh, Jesus giving us a sermon you know what? for how to I, I want to draw a little bit of uh, symbolism. It, it says that in seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. Why was the mountain significant? Because where did the law come from? From a mountain. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus mm-hmm. is drawing a parallel between him and Moses. And, and basically what he's doing is he's kind of throwing down the gauntlet to them and saying, hey, listen, you think that Moses' law was tough. I'm going to give you some really tough shit here to, to muddle on. And, and what he did is he said, okay, these, these things. And, and basically what he's showing is what we cannot do on our own strength. Because if you, if you try to do this, Basically, what you're going to do is you're going to yoke yourself to something. It's going to be like an albatross around your neck, and you're not going to get the kind of escape velocity that you need to live a truly supernatural life. So, no, I don't think that it's a guide for living. I think that Jesus is actually saying, listen, you think that what you heard was tough? I'm about to really lay it down for you. So, you think it's a... a a challenge. I mean, so you think he's trolling? Is he trolling them? Is he that's saying exactly? Here's a here's a list of things you that's, can't that's do. That's exactly what he's doing. Jesus is trolling here. I couldn't have put it better myself, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I've heard that theory before. I, I personally don't lean on that direction, but that's good. I mean, this this podcast is built on the idea that we all have different uh, perspectives and views, and so we want to have an opportunity for everyone to kind of weigh in on that. And so, yeah, what do you guys think? Matt, Katie, what do you guys think? This, this is the heretic happy hour, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to open up with some real heresy. <laughs> well, I would love to hear, yeah, I'd love to hear Matt's, and then I can give a little bit of an overview just for, for listeners if this is the, I'm sure it's no one's first time to hear about the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, kind of where where this fits into the Gospel of Matthew. Well, see, I, did, I just think like when we focus just straight on the Beatitudes, you know, from, you know, from the get-go, I think Jesus is actually trying to give people who are uh, oppressed or who are on the bottom rungs of society some hope. Right. So he, so I think he's almost saying like, well, even though this shit is twisted against you, blessed are those who are, you know, who, who are meek and humble and gentle. Um, those who are mourning right now, like you're, it, it's not, it, of course we abuse it. And we, and we then say like, oh, you're supposed to just be this um, sort of, passive person who is always downtrodden. No, I don't think it's that. I think it's just, but, but saying like, you know, uh, I know you're oppressed now, but you're, you're still blessed. And it's, and it's doing this whole reversal of how people typically think of those who are blessed and those who are cursed, you know, throughout history, we've all, we've always had the, well, if your circumstances are such like Job, then you've obviously done some bad stuff. And you're cursed. And those who are on the top rungs of society, well, look at their situation. They're obviously blessed. And I think Jesus is trying to reorient that sort of uh, dualistic view of how things go and say, no, God blesses everyone, which he gets to later in five and says, no, this is not about rain and dust. Dust going to the wicked, rain going to, to, to the righteous. God is not in that business. This is what we do. God's not in that business. God blesses all. So I think he's trying to give some hope to some otherwise oppressed people. Yeah. For the record, that's my 1A interpretation. <laughs> 1A? What you just that's said. A, that's that's a, second best. That's my, yeah. my 1A. Right. <laughs> yep. 
Katie. I feel like there's a PowerPoint presentation that might be coming up right. about Derek. So I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, so well, the Sermon on the Mount just might be helpful to give a little bit of an overall context. And so as Derek alluded to, you know, Jesus is on this mountain, kind of this presentation in this mosaic figure giving the law, but we're we're seeing reinterpretation of the law. And so we have the Beatitudes, we have the verses about like, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, really, really famous ones that come from this sermon. So Jesus basically speaks for all of chapter five, all of chapter six, all of chapter seven, the Lord's prayer is in here. And at the very end, at the very end of chapter seven, it kind of concludes with now Jesus has finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as one of their scribes. Then he goes down from the mountain. That's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. So really influential, um, really has been in- interpreted and reinterpreted by people throughout all ages. It's definitely captured the Christian imagination. And, you know, we've seen uses and abuses. And then today is all about these Beatitudes, these blessed are those who, mm-hmm. right? Matt mm-hmm. mentioned several of them. So I'll throw our first wrinkle in here. Another way we could um, translate the word that we usually translate as blessed is happy. Right. I'm kind of curious how this would feel if we said like happy are those who mourn, happy are the happy are the meek. And so there's um, some variety here with how we can actually translate that particular right. word. I have another translation, and that that word blessed means spoken well over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I do think that I mean I kind of lean like what you're saying, uh, Matt. Like I uh, I think if you back up. Um, like before chapter five of Matthew begins at the very end of chapter four, uh, it, you know, what it, it kind of ends, chapter four ends leading into chapter five saying, uh, verse 23, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And so really everything Jesus was about, uh, if you read through the gospels, was the kingdom. Like he's always, always talking about the kingdom. And that's what the good news was. The good news was the kingdom of God is here. It's, it's available now. You can enter it today. You don't have to wait till after you're dead. And so for me, the the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus sort of painting a picture of this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Uh, so I think he does expect that we can do this, but, he, but he's, he's showing us this great reversal. He's saying, you know, in the world where we, we the world we live in, the world we see with our eyes, um, you know, blessed are the rich, blessed are the people with power and control, right? But, because those are the ones that are blessed in the world. If we're just honest and we look around, those are the blessed. Um, and Matt alluded to this, right? That Jesus is kind of flipping it upside down and saying, well, in the kingdom, blessed are the poor, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, because they're the ones who will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, because they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry uh, for righteousness, because they, they're the ones who are going to be filled. And so it's, um, I, I see those uh, Beatitudes as Jesus sort of um, paint, contrasting a picture, right? He's He's because the, the whole I think the whole thing uh, kind of hinges on this idea of metanoia, right? The, the idea of repent that Jesus uses quite mm-hmm. a bit. But again, repent doesn't mean feel sorry for your sins. Repent means think differently. And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is a big can of think different. It's like it's making everybody go, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Because uh, it would have been like nails on the chalkboard. It would have been like, what are you, what do you mean, blessed are the poor? What do you mean, blessed are those who are mourning? Blessed are those that are, uh, you know, uh, who, who, are, who are meek and all those things. That's crazy. That's not the world I live in. But he's trying to give them an imagination for that in the kingdom of God, this, these are the people that are blessed. 
So it's a reversal. I hadn't thought of it this way, Keith, but it's interesting because this is a reversal of like Deuteronomistic mm -hmm. theology mm -hmm. where you're blessed if you do good yeah. things. You know, if you, if you follow the rules, right, you'll be blessed with wealth. You'll be blessed with all this other yeah. stuff. And Jesus, I always, I always kind of laugh that anyone actually followed Jesus in the first century because he asked people continuously to do really hard yeah. things. I'm like, why is anyone following this guy? <laughs> this is not easy. <laughs> well, yeah. And see, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think, um, and so we're all kind of throwing out different things of ways to, how do we interpret that word blessed? Um, yep. So there's a guy uh, I know, and apparently I just found out, Katie, you know who this guy is too, Dr. Scott Barchi. Um, hey, Scott. Yeah, great guy. He He's a guy I met uh, years ago. He's Professor Emeritus of Christian Origin and History uh, and Religion at UCLA, and a super great guy. I've interviewed him several times, and he just has a habit of sending me these like scholarly papers that he writes uh, and I just email him to me, go, Hey, Keith, I wrote this paper for some, you know, journal and I'm going to be presenting it in Germany at some conference, you know, check it out. <laughs> and I'm, so he sent me one a couple of years ago and it's about this, uh, Sermon on the Mount. And he was pointing out, um, that, um, that the first century, you know, Judaism was, it was a, this was an honor, shame culture. Yeah, and, and the whole Mediterranean was. Of course it was, yes. Yeah, and yeah, so his was. point was that what Jesus is really doing, again, is this reversal. But what he's saying, in, in a way, is uh, honored are the poor. Because, again, it's an honor-shame culture. And so he's he's mm. also then putting his finger on and, and uh, suggesting a new way of thinking of honor and shame. Uh, so because, again, in, in that culture, you would if you were poor, you would be shamed. If you were, quote-unquote, a sinner, you were blind, you were a leper— uh, right, all these people that the Pharisees wanted to stay away from, they, they were they had shame, and so Jesus came to give honor to those people and to say, no, no, God honors these people. God, God wants these people. Uh, wants wants you to recognize that these are the people that God honors. And one of the things too about honor shame culture is that it's zero sum. So there's there's a limited amount of honor in the world. So if right. I gain yeah. some, someone has to lose it. And this seems, I wonder if we can kind of think about this, um, and I haven't read the article, is breaking that wide open where, where Jesus is like, yeah, there's no limit. Hmm. There's no limit to the, um, to the, to the honor, if we're going to use that word, or, you know, to the blessedness. Right, right. Well, so right. one of the, one of the no things, cap. yeah, one of the things he points out, for example, I thought was fascinating is that um, he, he says, you know, that the Pharisees in that time and everybody else, as you said, anybody, everybody in the first century uh, Palestine, uh, this was normal behavior. So for them to sit at the place of honor when they were, went to a table, to a, to, a, to a dinner party, right? For them to sit at the place of honor closest to the host, um, they were, everyone was trained to do that since they were uh, from birth. So it was, if they were ever, anyone was to ask their rabbi if they could be given the place of honor, that was completely acceptable. And so it wasn't sinful. In other words, like we tend to read those things as, oh, you, you prideful, sinful wretch, like Jesus is correcting your sinfulness. No, 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 he's not. He's not even suggesting it's sinful. He's saying, he, reckon, he acknowledges that for you to behave that way is normal to you. He's just suggesting a different way of thinking of normal, <laughs> that uh, rather than to play into this sort of cultural male socialization, because um, again, whenever you did that, when you were seeking honor, it wasn't for yourself, it was for your family. Right. This was something that because if, if you had honor, your family had honor, and you and if yeah. you had shame, you brought shame on your family, right? So this was this was a really big deal. So for Jesus to redefine shame and to redefine honor, uh, well, actually, what he what he deals more with is honor, right? He doesn't really shame anybody. He's redefining 
uh, the things that they thought were shameful and saying, no, no, these, this was actually honorable. Yeah. And shamefulness is different from shame, whereas shamefulness is actually um, women were supposed to have shamefulness, like modesty. Right. Too. And I think Jesus also blows that wide open, too, with his interactions, like with the woman who's about to be stoned for adultery, right? He's like, actually, um, yep. There's no, yeah, shame is not really what's what's needed here, right? So he he breaks that open. There's again, there's no zero sum, right? Yeah, I, I think too that, that something that's going on here is that when we talk about honor and shame, I, I think that he's placing more emphasis. The honor is on being and not on doing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just really, I'm really hanging my hat on that because when when I look at Jesus, it, nothing that he said really was keyed in on doing. I, I think that these these passages of Scripture allude to all of the doing that people were, um, that, that, that had been burdened, that they had been burdened with. And, and so now what, what, what Jesus is saying, okay, there's a different paradigm coming here, guys, that this kingdom is not a kingdom of doing, this kingdom is a kingdom of being. And so the the honor the honor is in understanding your being and not in what you do. Yeah, I, I I'm loving this, Derek. If 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 you don't mind, I'd like to go back to something you started with, which is that this was laid out for us or for them um, to show what we can't uh, accomplish or that it's the yoke is going to be difficult. Um, do you think that perhaps, however, it is only possible if communities do it? And that's perhaps why Christian community was so, um, you know, pretty robust in, in in the book of Acts, in the early Christianity. And now we've gotten to a place where we're only thinking about, well, how do I do the Sermon on the Mount? Or right. is that the ethic that I do? Rather than maybe we can accomplish something, but it's a we thing and not an I thing. I, I think that that's a very interesting approach um, that, and I, and I could see where, where that could be construed that way. But I, I honestly believe that where, where Jesus is, what he's starting off with is showing them the difference between doing the yoke of doing that they have been tied to for centuries and, and this new freedom in being. When you say doing, Derek, what do you what do you mean? Like, what's an example? Works, actions, behaviors. In in other words, basically, like blessed are the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what is that saying? Is that saying that in in order to achieve the kingdom of heaven, that you must be poor in spirit? And I think that that's created a a, a really heavy burden on the church because people want to exercise this false humility, this false piety mm-hmm. as a means of saying that I am worthy. And, and, and this is what Jesus is actually trying to correct here yeah. that, that it's not, it's, it's not your self-deprecation that gets it done for you. It's the understanding that you are divinely human. And basically what he's doing is he's starting off by reverse engineering the law to illustrate what, because basically in order to reconstruct, in, in order to evolve, you, you have to properly deconstruct some things. And, and I think that the, that the Beatitudes is, is actually an incredible deconstruction. Mm. No, I agree with that. I totally agree with you that uh, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is a systematic takedown of uh, 
Judaic uh, mosaic ways of thinking, like that whole uh, performance-based thing. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I think Jesus constantly, you know, you have heard it said, quotes Moses, but I say to you, yep. it says something different. And, and he's constantly, even when he's not making it that obvious, and Matt, you're the one that pointed out that when when Jesus says, you know, be, if you want to be like your father in heaven, uh, you know, love your enemies, because if you do that, you're, this is what he does, because he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, that that in itself, that statement that God brings rain on the just and the unjust is a direct contradiction of a statement in Deuteronomy, where Moses says the opposite. Jesus is contradicting Moses all the time. So I totally agree with that. But I think here's another way to think of it. Uh, and I, I think this is helpful. I'm um, going back to the Barchi article, because again, what he pointed out that I found found so fascinating was this. He said, um, again, those in the honor shame culture, especially the males, right? They 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 were trained to seek honor for themselves and really for their family. And that was the way they all behaved. And so Jesus kind of throws this little, you know, wrench or this little uh, hook into it, uh, you know, or like this right-hand tangent. And what he suggests is this. Um, what he wants his disciples to do is this, to ascribe honor to others. In other words, not be so concerned about looking on for honor for yourself, but to, to work to ascribe honor to others and to work to help others who don't have honor in your culture, who currently are shamed, that we're going to, what we're going to do is work to honor those people. Uh, and you know what I'm saying? So it's not about like, you should be working for your own honor for your own family. Instead, Jesus says, you know what, here's an idea. Why don't we, instead of looking for honor for ourselves, why don't we work for honor for those who could never have it? Now, see, that's really cool. And and one thing I want to say, I want to make one thing in my Nixon voice. Let me make this perfectly clear. <laughs> Is that what I'm saying is not a is not a stake in the sand. This isn't a a theological uh, linchpin for me. Okay, basically, I, I look at it like this: that anything that I know, I, I believe that I know, but I also leave room around it for uh, for superior knowledge to to get in and displace what I'm thinking. So I, I get the honor thing. I, I, I'm, I'm really, and and that's giving me a, a different insight into this. One of the things that's coming up for me is um, I feel like we might be mischaracterizing early Judaism, actually. And okay. so this is, yeah, this is kind of an important, like uh, something that I think we as Christians wrestle with a lot, right? So we've been describing Judaism as meritorious, law-driven, but we're not seeing, we're not lifting up right now the parts of Hebrew scriptures, of Old Testament, of Judaism that did, you know, command care for the widows, care for the orphans, right. lift these people up, the social justice of the prophets. Yes. And that, yeah, that kind of meritorious description of Judaism, it makes me, it makes, I'm like, makes my spine twist just a little bit, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, ah. So I'm, I'm imagining all my Jewish friends and colleagues being like, that's not our experience of our religion. So it's one slice in a caricatured slice uh -huh. in the New Testament of Judaism. Yeah. I have no problem. Like the, I love like Derek, when you were like, this is teaching us how to be I'm such a doer. I'm like, preach it. I need it. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. I like. I need that that pers that perspective. Listen, that, that was that was the uh, the moment of freedom for me, and in, in my whole uh, theological journey was when I was able to divorce myself from what I had to do, because once I once I understood, okay, that what I do is not the important part. It's who I am that's important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, so when I, when I see Jesus, I see this constant reiteration and reinforcement of, of understanding your being. Right. And, and so what, what I think 
in in here in the Beatitudes, we're seeing the first step on the path of deconstruction for his disciples. Yeah, I yeah, I agree with that. I I I um and thank you, Katie, for for that corrective. I think that's the. I receive that. I think that's right. Yeah. Because an I think an expansion stuff. I'm inviting us into. Well, because, because I mean, but you make a good point because um, whereas I do believe that what Jesus was critiquing was that aspect of Judaism that what did, he specifically talks about how the Pharisees put this yoke upon people that they themselves won't carry. Right. And so I think it is that aspect of it that he wants to set them free from. But, but of course, Jesus would not be against things like Micah 6, 8 and, you know, other verses in Isaiah and Jeremiah that talk about, you know, this is the kind of fasting I have chosen to share your meals with the, those who are hungry and all these kinds of things. And absolutely, there are beautiful things in the Jewish tradition and scriptures that I know that Jesus would affirm because he did. I mean, those are the things that he did affirm. Yeah, so, and he's standing absolutely. in that tradition. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, he's he's yeah, yeah. participating and, in that. But I'm glad I'm glad you made that point to mention because I mean, in regardless of the of of the faith tradition we're talking about, there's always these different slices. There's never you can never say the Jews believed, or you can never say the Christians <laughs> right. believed. You cannot say well Buddhism teaches, and it's like because there, <clears throat> excuse me, there is such a wide spectrum of what is taught within these traditions. I'm of the belief, honestly, that in the book of Genesis, forget Jesus for a second, you have the entire gospel. I mean, you have you have these messages that are all throughout Hebrew scriptures. So do you need Jesus? Yeah, sure, on one hand, I suppose. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> there's the hair. Thank you. There's the Thank you. What the hell? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, but my point being is that Jesus is, like Katie just said, a part of his tradition, and he's within a stream of his tradition that was teaching very similar messages. Yes, he reorients Deuteronomy 28. Yes, he does these things, but that's within his prophetic tradition to do so. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so, um, Katie, um, do you think, how how do these things, uh, and I guess not just Katie, any of us, like, uh, how do we feel, how relevant are these kinds of things, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talks about? How relevant are they for us today? I've been, I've been letting these, I've been sitting with these oh, for like the past bit of time because we're in the middle of tremendous social upheaval, mm-hmm. a lot of it good, a lot of it confusing. You know, we're, we're in the throes of a resurgence or maybe an intensification of Black Lives Matter matters right now. And I, I actually prayed these earlier today uh, when I sat down in my own kind of contemplation. And I like the ones in Luke a lot better than the ones in Matthew. The ones in Matthew kind of tend to spiritualize uh-huh. stuff like blessed are the pure in heart or blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right. And yeah. When I flip on over to uh, Luke, Luke only has four. Um, but in Luke six twenty, blessed are you who are poor for yours yeah. is the kingdom of God. That's yeah. really different from blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Yeah. I think the one that was, that just sunk in on me and Elena and her text message, um, just gave us a beautiful introduction into this is blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Yeah. And I've just, yeah, I've been reflecting on like, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And sometimes being a peacemaker means stirring things up uh-huh. or at least right. pointing out injustice and, and, Speaking up against injustice is part of peacemaking, and I thought that is so, so true. And whenever you do stand up and say with your voice, whether that's with your actual voice or with a sign or uh, on social media or all the above, um, you, you, 
quite often we'll get some really uh, angry responses to that. And yet you cannot allow that to make you uh, be silent, right? You have to speak out against those things and say, when you see injustice, this is wrong. And not yeah, just it's a, wrong, we should fix it. I had a little, damn it, Jesus, you're asking me to do hard stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like I, I look at verse six. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And and what's interesting to me about that is that that, that particular one kind of keys on this whole religious aspect of things, right? Because if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then that means that that you're you're never satiated. Even though it says they shall be filled, it's saying that this is something you have to pursue. You have to relentless relentlessly pursue. And and I really believe again that that what Jesus is doing here, and this this is an opening salvo on on taking people from from what the importance of doing because a lot of the Jewish culture was based on your actions, mm-hmm. and and what Jesus is saying is that this is a you know um, like blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Well, what happens when you actually see yourself as love? So when you see yourself as love, then you truly become meek. And 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 when you talk about meek, I love this because uh, I always say pe- to to people that um, you know meekness is not equal to weakness. You know, in the in the 1920s, you had Jack Dempsey who was a heavyweight champion of the world, and he would say, "I'm Jack effing Dempsey, and I can beat any man in here." Right. And, and he, had his, he had his takers and everything. But then fast forward to the 60s and 70s and you have Bruce Lee be like water, it, which is yeah. which is the meek one. Both of these guys are equally powerful, probably equally capable at the very least. But one one says says that, hey, you know, that in, in a very condescending tone that I can beat anyone. And the other one says, I don't have to beat anyone because I I, I recognize myself. You see what I'm saying? It, it's like we, what, what all of this, you know, blessed are they that mourn. And again, you have, you have people that, that basically put on sackcloth and ashes almost as a means of drawing attention to themselves yeah. instead of actually, you know, yes, we mourning is a, is a human condition. We mourn when we lose something. We mourn when we go through something. That's a human emotion. But what happens is, is, and again, I think what Jesus is showing that people who are doing all of these things, dude, really, why are you doing this? Let me show you a way of being that in your being that you'll fulfill all of this without even trying. Yeah. Now, see, Derek, okay. Now, I think you and I are getting closer together now. So, because uh, I agree with you, um, I, I do and I don't, because part of me hears you talking. I'm like, well, but see, I really do think Jesus was about orthopraxy. He really did care about how we behave. But what you just said right there, though, I think um, touches on it. I think I think it's a nuance to it. Like I, I, I have this saying, uh, this phrase I use all the time. I need to make a T-shirt. It says, um, <laughs> where I say, uh, swimming doesn't make you a fish, but if you're a fish, you'll swim. And see, I think Jesus is about making us fish. And it's, it is this transformation. He's making, he's wanting us to recognize who we are. It is our identity. It is about it. In other words, these things flow out of recognizing our identity, recognizing who we are. This part of this abiding in Christ and Christ about abides in you. And then out of, out of that, what flows, uh, is 
action. I mean, because you, you know, uh, a good yeah. tree bears good fruit, right? You can't, an yeah. apple tree doesn't bear grapefruit and a grapefruit tree doesn't bear apples. You, you can't help it. You're just going to do these things. So the emphasis is not on do these things so you'll become righteous. That's what the Pharisees thought. Jesus flips right. it around and says, no, first make the tree good. And then yeah. the tree and will be good fruit. I, and so there's the recognition of, no, recognize the, the, that the tree, who are you, right? Recognize yeah. who you are and then you'll bear the right fruit. I completely agree with that. But, you know, it, it's like looking at verse eight, blessed are, blessed are the pure in heart. Mm-hmm. How do you, how, it, one of the things that really chaps my high is when I hear Christians say, create in me, oh Lord, a, a clean heart. And I'm like, what the hell is that for? I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. And if you're a new creature, then that means you get a new heart. Okay, right. so so what what are you asking for? And so when you say blessed are the pure in heart, if a, a flat reading of that would say, okay, I need to find out what I need to do in order to purify my heart. But what Jesus is doing as you as you move down this, you know, he's actually showing that you have a pure heart, that you have a clean heart. And that you can have the expectation of seeing God because this this God dwells in you. That's yeah. and that's that's what you know. I I just look at this now as as uh you know basically Jesus is literally trolling folks and saying, listen, all this stuff that you've been taught how to do in order to get your your doing to receiving, you know, dude. At the end of the day, it's all bullshit. Let me show you a better way. Mm-hmm. One, one of the, something that kind of just flipped in me uh, about five minutes ago is verse four, the blessed are those who mourn. And this could be, you know, as the a potential abuse of the Beatitudes. Right. I love yep. it that Jesus gives us permission to mourn here because so right. often in, you know, Christian culture, we're told to mourn is actually unfaithful that, you know, we should always be happy. Like it's a kind of fault of, cult of You're positive supposed thinking. To give, yeah, give thanks in all things, man. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I love <laughs> this, like, yeah, like, like I'm allowed to mourn. Um, and that mourn can mourning can also turn me into a peacemaker and you know, but like processing all all of the emotion that goes along with all of this. So that kind of I don't know, just tripped something. I think something that Derek said. Well, and, um, and it just that one. Yeah. It allows us to be real. And that's, yeah. that's a problem in the church so much is that we're not allowed to be real. We're a culture of fine instead of being <laughs> real with folks. Like, it's okay to mourn. Like, I mean, goodness, they got entire books in the Hebrew scriptures about lamenting and, and, yeah, it's like, it's okay. And, and, you know, I think also like when we will be happy when we're allowed to do that, because in, you know, that, that grieving, that mourn, mourning process is natural and it's a part yeah. of it's part of actually how you heal as a, as a human being. You have to go through that stuff. Yep. How we remove sorrow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, okay. I have a um, a technical question. Did y'all know that there's a debate on whether there's eight or nine beatitudes? Yeah. Oh, I really? Heard that. Do you tell, tell how many? <laughs> oh. Y'all scholars just want to debate everything, don't you? <laughs> so the question is, if this last one um, is uh, in verse 11, blessed are you when people revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I think that's one that's been kind of living with me this week, not for me in particular, but just for a lot of people who are who are doing Jesus work, but they do get reviled and they do get persecuted. 
But there's um, a question on if that one is a like real beatitude or not. So why, why would it not be real? It, it, it does say blessed are. It's the only, yeah, it's the only one that says you instead of oh, like them. Blessed the, are the ones. Yeah, yeah kind of more generic. Yeah. They. So that's that's one reason. Uh-huh. Or the, and the content the content is a lot more difficult. Yeah. Well, I've never, no, I never heard that that was, I mean, I, I guess for me, I'm confused. Like, I don't, why would we? Like uh, typically when I see a scripture and people are debating, does that belong there? It's sort of like a scribe wrote that in a, in a margin and it ended up, you know, in the text later on. Oh no, it's authentic yeah, okay. to Matthew. Okay. Yeah. 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 But like, is let, it a beatitude? A beatitude is the name we give something, you know. Let me, let me give you an example, like in, in today's culture, you know, people say, oh, well, if you're a Christian, people are going to speak evil of you. You can expect that. You can expect persecution. You can expect people to say all manner of evil against you. And, and and so again, I, I'm not saying that 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 Jesus is like signing off on this. He's not codifying it. You know, he's just saying that that when you understand your being, that this that that whatever people say, it's not it, it it's not going to impact you. You know, you, you basically the the beatitudes are a crash course in spiritual maturity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. So the thing I've always noticed, though, is I've heard so many Christians like quote that verse, you know, blessed are you and people insult you and persecute falsely and say all kinds of people about you because of me. And there's other places where Jesus says that, you know, he kind of warns his disciples that they will hate you because they hated me and all that. And but Christians will typically um, nowadays will typically quote those kinds of verses and, and it becomes a blank check to be an asswipe. And, um, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's yeah. not at all. Jesus is not saying, oh, people will hate you because you're a dick. No, if they, if, if, exactly. if they are mad at you because you said something horrible, it's that, it, that's why they're mad at you. In other words. Yeah. You're hated because right. you're a dick. You're not yeah, a peacemaker. You're, exactly, you're not yeah. a peacemaker. You're yeah. not loving people the way Jesus does, you know? And like, I always tell people like, you know, when they're like, oh, I'm loving them. I'm telling them the truth, you know, and I'm, that's why I'm being a, a oh dick to God. them. It's like, no, no, no. If people don't feel loved, then you're not, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you know, do it. If, if you want to really if your goal is to love people, then make sure you're doing it in such a way that they actually feel loved when you're done. Well, that's not biblical love, brother. That's not biblical love. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> okay. So check check out verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We talked about that, right? How do you how do you make peace? How can you make peace externally when you don't have peace internally? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, it, again, yeah, it, it it goes back to the being because if you don't understand that, because if you are love, then you have to be peace. Mm-hmm. You have to be it, because if you if you if you are not peace, then that means the love is absent. And and truthfully, the love itself is not absent. It's simply your understanding of it. Yeah. So once you once you you know dive in and understand, hey, I am love. I'm not just loved. I'm not just accepted in the beloved, but I am love. Mm. And so because I am love. Now I can be peace. And and I'm going to tell you something. This is one that is ministering to me right now, because with all of this stuff that's going on, listen, I just, sometimes the spirit of slap comes over me. <laughs> Did you say slap? slap? The slap. <laughs> all yeah. right. And, and, and I, and I want to be the, the opposite of my buddy, Carl Forehand and, and execute a backhand, <laughs> you know? <laughs> This is this is where I am, but I, I I have to remember that that who I am, 
I have to retreat back into who I am so that I don't cuss somebody out, so that I don't actually lay hands on someone not in the Holy Mm -hmm. Ghost. (laughs) I I have to admit, Derek, when you were talking about blessed are the pure in heart, I was like, sometimes my heart doesn't feel, it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel pure. It feels filled with sludge and (laughs) and anger at people. I've I've divorced myself from that. I see myself as pure in heart. I see myself as merciful. I see myself as righteous. righteous. I see myself as meek. I see myself as comfortable. All of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love and, that. It's, and, and yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, focusing on this, the Christ in us because the Christ in us is all, embodies all. The, like we embody Christ when we uh, act out of all those things, right? Yeah, absolutely. so we're not shaming ourselves for what yeah. we're not, and we're we're and we're acting like Christ when we head over to our website <laughs> and make sure that we bookmark it, because that's how you become more loving and more Christ-like. Is you go to heretichappyhour.com and you make sure you check that out every now and then to see all these new episodes we got and to buy stuff from our store, and that's how you. That's how you blessed are those who buy our <laughs> shit. <laughs> it's just, I'm going to add a, uh, another beatitude there. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's the 10th beatitude yeah, there right go. there. Oh, the 10th I one. love it. Buy our shit. <laughs> blessed are those who buy our shit. <laughs> hey, that's a t-shirt. There you go right there. T-shirt and throw pillow all yeah. in one. Oh. It's we like a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. We also have two Facebook groups. So after you go to the website and check out all of the cool shit there, we would love to see you in our Heresy After Hours. And this is open to absolutely everyone. There's a couple, about 1,500, 1,600 people in there right now, all asking similar questions as you. And it is filled with the greatest, snarkiest memes. Mm. So for nothing else, get over there and see the creative things that people post in this group. And we also have one for Patreons. So for at the $2 a month minimum, just $24 a year, then you get access to the exclusive group for the Patreons. And all of your hosts are there. And we love to answer questions and interact with you there too. So we'd love to see you in both of those. That's right, Katie. And not only do you get your access to the Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group, you also unlock as a member of Patreon for just $2 a month or more. Uh, so much bonus content, bonus interviews with amazing people like David Bentley Hart and uh, Bart Ehrman and just on and on. I mean, so many incredible, amazing interviews over there you can unlock because we look, we're, we're working overtime for you guys. We don't, you know, we do this podcast for you, but then when you stop listening, we're still going. We're like little busy bees and we're still talking. We're still interviewing. We're still doing podcast stuff and we're putting it up there on the Patreon page. You know why? Because we love you and you guys are awesome. Thank you. Join the Patreon page, patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And if you really, really, really care about us, execute the 12th commandment. <laughs> Oh, blessed now. are they blessed are they which leave and leave a review and rate us at five stars on iTunes. Woo-hoo! I pity the fool <laughs> who doesn't give us a five star rating. Oh yeah, baby. Yeah, don't don't do what Jamal 80s. said and give us oh. a one. Don't listen no. to that guy. Don't listen to that guy. You made you're making me long for the 80s, Derek. Thank you. <laughs>